It's time to start another PPSA podcast public service announcement. This is another, like, like two episodes ago, I talked about how amazing Sasha from ID8 was. Well, prepare to have your mind blown once again, because I'm talking to a serious, serious guy right now. Like this guy's legit and this is a good get for me. Uh, you're gonna want a pen and paper. You might wanna have to listen to this one twice. It's more pricing goodness. And this, this me reading the book that we talk about and having this podcast and talking to him has changed how I'm gonna be doing some pricing and a lot of the philosophy of how to approach it. And I'm so excited. I should start by saying that pretty much every time I talk about the book I read, I do not say the name right. I say pricing creatively. That is not the name of the book. It's pricing creativity. And I'm so sorry, Blair, for screwing that up. Not that I think you're listening to this. You had bigger things to do, but uh, I don't know, man. I totally dropped the ball there. Pricing, pricing, wow, okay. Real struggle around here. Pricing creativity. So I'm gonna let you listen to the rest of this and we'll circle back at the end to, to have a little minor debrief about how freaking glorious it was. I am so excited to be talking to you. I feel like I can't even believe it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna introduce you and then I'm gonna tell you the backstory about you, which I told in an email, but I wanna tell the listeners too. And then we're gonna get to it because I feel like I have a list of so many questions I wanna ask. So okay. Because I want to maximize every minute I have here. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to try to say all this. <laughs> all right, guys, I'm here with Blair Ends, the CEO of Win Without Price. Redo. <laughs> all right, guys, I'm here with Blair Ends, the CEO of Win Without Pitching, author of the Win Without Pitching Manifesto and Pricing Creatively. Okay, it's a tongue twister, guys. And Pricing Creatively, a guide to profit beyond the billable hour. Nobody's supposed to say all that at once. Not me anyway. Thank you for being here. It's my pleasure, Michelle. Thanks for having me. I can't even. Okay. So I'm going to, I already told you, I don't even, maybe you didn't read the email, but at some point I told the guy who originally reached out to me. So I had been listening to the Ditching Hourly podcast and you were a guest. Yes. And I've told my audience and listeners about that podcast before. And I had come across you. And I listened to the podcast and I knew about the Pricing Creatively book. I Googled it. I went, I bookmarked it. And I kept going back going like, I need to buy this book. I need to buy this book. And then, you know, a million bookmarks later, it gets, it goes in deep. Right. And I don't know when somehow somebody on your team found my podcast and someone from your team reached out to me saying he'd love to be a guest. And I couldn't even believe it. I was so pumped. Yeah, uh, I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, and, and it's, then, um, it's, I'm not surprised you didn't buy the book. It's not a cheap book. It's an expensive book, isn't it? Truth be told, it is. But I'm going to tell everybody right now, I have since read almost the entire book, The Real Nuts and Bolts. And I, I would say a million times over that this is so worthwhile and I can't wait to dig in. But this is insane. It's incredible. So also, I did start listening to your podcast. So I found your podcast. I had to get two pump bobs, the brakes. The number two B-O-B-S. Yep. So tell me about the name of that podcast. What is that? What is that? What is that? Uh, it's an inside joke. So I do it with a friend of mine. His name is David C. Baker. He serves the same market I do, which is independent creative firms. He's, he's a consultant. I run a training company. Um, 
And uh, we're both really big fans of the movie Office Space. <laughs> and that's why the red stapler! Yes. Hold on! <laughs> the oh swing line stapler. I have one in my outer office. I'm sitting so in my upset right, right now. now. I don't know where my stapler is. I'm very <laughs> upset. Friend of mine, I stole her stapler. My Everything's loud right now. I have a red stapler, and it was an old coworker gave it to me. And she has it because of office space. So the story is Swingline didn't even make that red stapler anymore or they never made it. And then it was made as a prop and then they put it into production. So David and I, we're, we were trying to come up with a name for our podcast. And we both like uh, Office Space. And in the movie Office Space, if your listeners haven't seen it, there are, there's this company, this technology company called Inatech, and they bring in these two consultants. <laughs> and they're both named Bob <laughs> and good. David and I, because we serve the same market, we're both consultants. I used to be a consultant. I run a training company. Now we were more than once referred to as the two Bobs. That's so good. I love that backstory. I was like trying to crack the code. Clearly I don't know office space <laughs> enough to know. Cause I feel like if I did, I would have got there, but okay. Well, before we get into the nitty gritties of the things, are, are we, are we going to be talking about the, the five rules today? What do we, what do you want to talk about? Whatever you want, Michelle, we could talk about the rules of pricing. Sure. So many things. I would love to talk about the rules of pricing. And then I would like to get your thoughts on a few other things. Yeah. And, but why don't you tell everybody first kind of your backstory? Cause you have a pretty robust uh, career history. I feel like. Okay. I grew up professionally in the advertising and design businesses. So in an ad agency, um, I worked in a, a mid-sized agency in a mid-sized market in Canada. Um, whoop, whoop. Yeah. I was in Winnipeg, actually. Uh, I'm still in Canada. I'm in a little village of, of 900 people in the remote mountains of British Columbia now. And our market is global. In fact, we, do, we don't do a lot of business in Canada. Um, just kind of worked out that way. But I, so right. I grew up professionally in ad agencies and design firms. I was a suit, not a creative. So I was an account person. And I very quickly uh, learned that I had a, an affinity for new business, which is the code word for sales, because we don't <laughs> use the S word in the creative professions. <laughs> Um, and then I, uh, fast forward a few years, I discovered this beautiful little remote mountain village and I, I was determined to move here with my young family and, uh, I had to find a way to earn a living. So I decided to launch a consulting practice that was called win without pitching. That was in 2002. So the crux of that consulting practice is really helping creative professionals, independent creative firms like ad agencies and various types of design firms to get better at at selling their business, particularly without having to give their thinking away for free. So we're really in the deprogramming business. And then in 2010, I published my first book, The Win Without Pitching Manifesto. In 2013, I was beginning to research pricing, value-based pricing, and I realized I was doing consulting wrong. And I either had to do it right, priced based on the value that I was helping to create, or I had to shift my business model to a productized services firm, a training company. And it could have gone either way, but I guess I was a little bit bored with consulting. So I decided to pivot to a training company, add staff and scale up. So that's where we are today. And in January of 2018, I published Pricing Creativity, a guide to profit beyond the billable hour. It's the first pricing book in the world, I think, that is priced based on the principles in the book. Therefore, it's very expensive. There are different <laughs> options you can buy. 
at different price points and it's all fully guaranteed. So if, yes. you, if you buy it and you don't make more money from it or for whatever reason, send it back, we'll send you your money back. Well, I read it, like I said, and I was like, I was into it, so into it. And I'm really excited. So I have, like I said, I put down a bunch of questions. I, you have, the biggest thing for me, and I'm hopefully we'll get to touch on this, was I had a bunch of like philosophy changes for myself and my business this year. And pricing, by the way, is a hot topic for interior designers. In particular, a lot of designers that would be listening to this are residential designers. So it's the, you know, how do you quantify that ROI? It's a little bit, I'm curious to hear your insights on that if, if you have thoughts. But after reading this, I've had some, there's so many, you opened my mind to so many different things, which was really great. And I'll share some of those, but let's start with the rules. Yeah. Now I, you say it in a nicer way than I just did the rules to how to price or the rules of pricing creativity. So mm -hmm. the book has four sections, principles, rules, tips, and tools. And the principles are the lovely. underlying, the few <laughs> underlying things that you need to kind of understand. So I read, um, when I wrote my book on selling, the Win Without Pitching Manifesto, I didn't read anything on selling because I don't, I don't, I don't want to learn how other people sell. I know what good and bad selling feels like from being sold to well and poorly. Mm -hmm. So I still, to this day, I avoid reading about selling. When I decided I didn't know much about pricing. I went the opposite direction. I'm actually a voracious reader. So I read the entire canon of literature on pricing, uh, a lot on behavioral economics, a lot on broader economics, lots on just broader judgment, human judgment and decision making, etc. Um, and there are a lot of principles that underlying uh, uh, revisiting your pricing strategy, but I, I was writing for designers. I wanted to distill it down to the fewest principles as possible. So there's four or five principles in the book. Like one, mm -hmm. one of them, the key one is this all value is subjective. Yeah. Value is like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. So we need to hold on to that idea when we're trying to determine the value of something, because one client is going to value something completely differently than another client. So the yeah. principles underpin the rules and there are six rules, which I say you should follow all the time. Oh, did I say five? Can we real quick on the value? Yeah. So is it, is part of that too, as a designer, understanding what we think our value is. And if we are presented with a client who, okay, as an example, client comes to me and says, I just really need my house furnished and my value and what I think I do is I don't just furnish a home. I make it beautiful and functional and, and da, da, da. So are we to understand our own value and make sure that we're qualifying people based on like making sure those values align. And if they don't, then maybe you're not the right client or do you deliver less? A better way to think about it is not, so you, you do have to understand your own value. That, that's part of the mental growth that needs to happen because you'll talk to 10 different interior designers and you'll give them the same scenario, a house of this square footage of, of a build or a renovation budget of this size, how much should they spend on, a, on an interior designer? And you'll get, five, you'll get different answers from everybody. And some, some, some will give you multiples. 
And in interior design in particular, when you're trying to quantify value uh, in res residential interiors, mm -hmm. the, the va it's not an economic equation, Yeah. right? Because at the end of the day, value is nothing more than a feeling. So we all get different feelings, different levels and sources of value from different things. So your job is really to uncover how valuable this, your services would be to the client. That's your job. And then you set price from there. So we all go into these conversations thinking, oh, like the budget range is X or X to Y. And we really need to let go of that. The first rule of pricing is price the client, not the job, not the service. It's not X this much for living rooms. It's not this much for bedrooms. It's not this much per square footage. It's price the client. So you go into that first conversation, having a conversation with the client, but what do you want? What are the, so simple framework, what do you want? What are the metrics of success? What's the value of this to you? And this gets more difficult when we're not quantifying economic value mm -hmm. in residential interiors, but you still get that out. What's this important to you? And then what would you be willing to spend on this? Um, and that's a framework for the value conversation. That's the fifth rule. So we're getting ahead of ourselves, master the value conversation. So let me back up. Okay. Rule number one, price the client, not the job, not the service. What that means is if a client or a prospective client comes to you and says, what do you charge for X? You don't have an answer because the, the proper answer is that depends on what X is worth to you. So let's say you have this idea in your mind that, you know, living rooms are worth $25,000 just to pick a number and yep. some would be higher, some would be lower. Um, you really need to let go of that. And if a client has $10,000 for the living room, you probably have a set idea of like a certain standards and a certain amount of time that you need to put into it. Yeah. And you might think if your threshold is 25,000 and the client says my budget is 10, you might be thinking, well, I just can't, I can't do that. I can't afford, I can't do this profitably. And that's wrong. You're because you're thinking about the project the way you usually do it. And you really need to let go of it and determine that, well, if it really is just worth 10,000 to the client, here's what I can do for 10,000. Right. And what I say to all my clients, even those in the advertising or graphic design or application design business, I say, you know, if your client says my budget's a thousand dollars, you you have a profitable thousand dollar solution. Mm -hmm. It's called consulting. It's a one hour phone call, no preparation, no no leave behinds. That's that's a profitable solution. Now you you'll employ some of the other rules in hopes of landing something much greater than a thousand. Right. But I just want to point out that part of pricing based on value rather than the time and materials, rather than your inputs of time, part of that is recognizing that some clients don't value things to the extent that you think they should. They're just not willing to pay that much. And it's in your best interest, if you want to be doing business at that price point at all, it's in your best interest to step back and say, well, here's what I can do profitably. Rather than doing what you usually do, the whole full meal deal, first class service and cutting price, just say, well, if that's really your budget, then here's what I can do for that budget. 
podcast is supported by Ultra Lux Linens. That's right, guys. Ultra Lux is a over 5,000 square foot showroom. It's got everything that you need when it comes to your linens, your fabrics. It carries Kravit, JF Fabric, Allendale, and to answer your question that I know you're thinking, it's the same. You're going to get the same designer rate you'd get if you went direct to any of those lines. What's great also is Jacqueline, the owner, who, by the way, has been a designer, decorator for over 20 years. Anytime I find out about a new fabric, I always email her first, whether it's like, you know, we're following each other on our stories and we, we happen to see a story and you catch a glimpse of a fabric and you might make out the name. So I email her and I find out whether or not she can get it. And she's always going to at least reach out to the, to the vendor and see if that they can actually carry it. They also have, let's see, wall coverings, rugs, hardware. I just received my hardware for my office. I'm going to hang all of my cute little fabric samples on there uh, so I can easily access them. It's going to be a little feature, but also super functional. But I got those the other day. Beautiful antique brass. Love. Uh, she also, I did not know this until probably a few months ago, and I'm so glad I get to share this with the world. She also does sheets and towels. Towels, guys. You can go into her showroom you can, she tells you the brand she cut, she carries. I'm trying to think of what they are. Don't remember off the top of my head, but she carries a bunch of them. You can go on the websites and see the different patterns that you might want. She has samples of all the different colors. So when you're actually designing a bathroom, you can actually just have some samples with you that you can be pulling and making sure you're getting it. You're not going to West Elm, Crate and Barrel, trying to find that right color for your, for your bathroom. You can get it all from one place and you can present it to your client when you present everything else. It's so efficient. She has a private label bedding company called Sugar Baker. She also carries other bedding. They have some, some custom furniture as well. And the most exciting part is that they just launched, I think it was a few months ago, probably half a year ago. I could be lying about that. A workroom. Uh, they do drapery. They do Roman shades. That's the same thing as drapery. They do, uh, they do pillows. I've gotten pillows done from her as well. So guys, if you want help with your, whether it's drapery or finding the right fabrics or wall coverings or whatever, any of the things I just said, then you need to reach out to them. You can go to ultraluxlinens.com or find them on Instagram or if you're in the GTA or going to be in the GTA go to the International Design Center TIDC in Mississauga second floor suite 202 and make sure if you don't tell them that Michelle sent you from Real Talk Design well nothing's going to happen because I cannot enforce you to say it but I'd really love it if you did because then she will know that you heard about them from me you will not be disappointed guys I got onto this kick this year. Well, you know what? I don't accept to, you know, I'm getting all cocky. I got like way too early, by the way. And I was just like, this is the kind of project I want. I want only big projects and I just want less clients, more money, right? But when I was reading your book, there was the whole idea of like the airplane philosophy, like first class, whatever, and that you should have tiers of price points of clients and 100% of your client base should not be the highest ticket or highest priced client, right? I'm, I'm very much paraphrasing here. <laughs> yeah. So I think we all, if we're running service-based businesses, we do have to, we do have to draw a line and say, it does not make sense to, for us to take clients that's underneath a certain level to spend it. So it's perfectly acceptable to keep raising your, your level. Now, from time to time, the reason, the reason we do that is we have a finite capacity in these types of businesses to handle 
number of clients. Like in, in a training company like mine, we're built for scale. So there's no mm-hmm. theoretical number of consultants, maximum uh, maximum clients that I could serve. But as a consultant, I could only ever work with three or four clients at one time. Um, as an interior designer, I don't know, you tell me, how many clients can you work with at one time? It's not a lot, right? So no. if that's the case, <laughs> we want to make sure that our clients are meeting a minimum threshold. And it's actually a really helpful sales tool to go into a conversation and say, hey, listen, I'm getting a sense this might be a small project. You need to know my minimum level of engagement is X in fees. Mm-hmm. 10,000 might be 100,000, whatever it is. Um, there's some rough math. I'm not sure if it apply to your business, but your clients' businesses. But in the broader design world and in the ad agency world, I say the starting point for calculating your minimum level of engagement is 10% of your, of your fee income target for the year. I I do, because you wrote that in the book and I started to kind of work back a little bit and I felt like it made sense. Granted, I was like, I didn't dig down too, too deep. It does feel like it, it makes sense. Okay, great. So um, yeah. So well, sorry, I, I just to throw a wrench into that though. We also make money off of uh, furniture sales, so yeah. so that throws that off a little bit, I'm sure. But yeah, and so I I I would expect I don't know the interiors business all that well, although we do have a few clients in the space, and I do talk to audiences like this from time to time. Um, I suspect there are different models in terms mm-hmm. of how people get paid. Some people might pass it on to the client and pass that discount on and just charge a fee. Some people might not charge a fee at all. And some it's a combination. That's yeah. typically what you see. Um, so it's perfectly, to your point, it's perfectly acceptable to have a minimum level of threshold. Um, and where it gets interesting is, you know, these one shorter one-off projects, those are like you've got a client in your roster. They've paid you for a big renovation or a big build. And then they keep coming back with these small projects. Yeah. It's probably in your, if they're a good client initially, it's probably in your interest to keep that client happy because there might be another big project down the road and just don't over deliver. Just say, well, if your budget really is $10,000, here's what I can do. And make sure you strip out the things that you would usually throw in to make it unprofitable. Just strip them out. Yeah. And then you employ the second rule. So the first rule is to price the client, not the job or the service. And the second rule is to always offer options. So you've got a client who says, my budget's 10000 and you're thinking, oh, I'd like to get fifty for a living room. You would say, all right. So you might say, we typically, you know, a typical starting point is 50 I'm usually looking at 50 to 100 or whatever. I'm just, mm-hmm. numbers are whatever they are. I'm just using. Yep. They're not off. <laughs> so you start with a high number, and then you say, when you're putting forward your proposal, here's what I can do for your budget. So if a client has a stated budget, you have a requirement, I believe, to put forward an option at that budget. But if you feel like the budget's not enough to accomplish what they want, you just, you make sure that you don't make up the difference. You, you make sure you strip out some of the things that they're looking for. And you say, here's what you can do for, here's what I can do for your budget. Now for more than your budget, Here's another option that's uh, a bit more expensive. And here's another option still that's really expensive. I'm a big fan of three options. And I talk about that in the book and I kind of Mm -hmm. prove it visually, the importance of offering options. You think of it this way, you're, um, 
if I have a bunch of prospective clients and I put two options in front of them, and option one is $10 and option two is $15, the average selected price is going to be somewhere between $10 and $15, $12.5, let's, let's say. Now, if I had a, a third option at $20, the average selected price will go up. If I mm-hmm. had a third option at $5, the average selected price will go down. So by putting forward multiple options, you do all kinds of things. Number one, you kind of drive the price up because there's a prince, the average selected price, because there's a principle known as extremeness aversion that says, when we are faced with options, we retreat from the dangers of the extreme to the middle options. So statistically, somebody puts three options in front of you, you're most likely to choose the middle option and avoid the um, danger of overpaying on the high end and avoid the danger of underbuying on the mm-hmm. low end. <clears throat> and Starbucks does this. There are three. You go into a Starbucks, you can buy a tall, you can buy a grande, and you can buy a venti. And Starbucks never really thought anybody was going to bu- drink 20 ounces of coffee or 18 ounces of <laughs> milk and two ounces of coffee in the venti. It used to be short, tall, and grande. And what they did is they took the short off the menu. You can still get it. It's just not on the menu. And then they moved it. They added a more expensive third option in the venti. And the average selected size went from tall to grande. So So simple and smart. Yes. So you're controlling. So you're... um, it's called choice architecture in the behavioral economics world. You're architecting the way you're influencing. It's also called a nudging. You're, you're nudging yeah. people in the decisions that they make. There's another key principle going on there with options in that clients need context. They can't look yeah. at if you have one solution, one price, they can't actually say, is this really worth that price? They need context. So they go get it by getting quotes from your competitors or thinking of what else they can get for that money. So when you put forward options, you're controlling the context. You're enabling them to make the decision their brain is wired to make. And that is answering the question, which of these is the best value? Mm-hmm. So rule number one, price the client. Rule number two, always offer options. Okay. So... I have, a, I have a line that I took from your book that I wanted you to help me. Like, I think I understand it, but I want you to help me with that. But before we get to that, um, number one, when it comes to options, just so people listening, because I this is what I took away, it's not that we're creating like productized packages. We are creating customized options based on the client, starting from what you can give them based on the budget that they gave you. Very, very important point. Thank you for bringing that up because that gets misunderstood a lot. I see people immediately going into packages and productizing, and that makes sense when you're a training company like mine, but your listeners, every single one of them runs a customized services Mm -hmm. business. So do not build standard packages. You create those packages or those options or bundles specifically for the client following rule number one price the client great point okay and then um one thing though i find and i don't know if this is just me not digging and forcing it what if you ask a client what would you pay or i guess i normally say like have you thought of a budget maybe it's in the language because i've never asked it quite like that what happens if a client's like i just i have no idea i'm just not sure what would it cost and a lot of people have never 
worked with an interior designer, they're flying blind, so they just can't even come up with a number. Do you try to push that number out of them? Like, what do you suggest when that happens? So I used to say a maxim that I heard somewhere and I just repeated ad nauseum, which is in price negotiation, he who speaks first loses, but the science says that's exactly wrong. Okay. So rule number three, rule number one is price the client. Rule number two, <laughs> offer options. Rule number three, anchor high. And so anchoring high means when you're talking price or just numbers at all, make sure the first numbers that come out of your mouth are really big. If you're going to put forward a proposal with three options, you start with the most expensive option. And okay. the job of that price is not to sell that option. The job of that price is to make the other options look less expensive by comparison. So, but I didn't really answer your question because earlier on, before you even get to the proposal, yeah. you've, you've got to talk price. Um, like, do, do I try to push it out, pull it out of them? Or do you just have to figure out what you think that number might be yourself? So you can ask, you can ask the question, have you set a budget for this or do you want some help with that? And if the client set a budget, it's nice to know that. Now, if you're using options and anchors, you're not limited by that budget, right? You will, in fact, if you, if you just, if you use these three rules and combinations, you, you'll, everybody will make more money immediately. Everybody will make more money immediately. It and if, seems even, very obvious, yeah. Yeah, and it's, um, I, I actually think your profit, and it's, you know, in some of your like home-based businesses, small, like residential interior businesses, it's hard to separate profit from personal compensation. But um, if, you're, if, you're, if you imagine that you pay yourself a fair salary that you would earn if you went and got a job, and then profit is everything that you earn mm -hmm. above that fair salary, your profit should increase by a minimum of 50%. That's by well, following these three yeah. rules. Well, I can get on board with that. Yeah. <laughs> Who Wait, okay, want I wanted to ask you that more profit. Exactly. Okay. I wanted to ask you that question because I think it tied into the thing. So I, I pulled this and I wanted you to help explain it to me. Okay. She being the example in the book where, you know, she's, okay, this is what you wrote. She might be able to lose her. She might also lose her job if she cheaped out. Okay. So it has to do with hiring an agency going really high or going too low in yep. the person that you hire, like on the business side, whatever. She might also lose her job if she cheaped out and underbought at 50 K achieving the same poor performance. 850 K is a safe, but expensive bet. 50k is risky, but inexpensive bet. So is it basically like you get what you pay for is the bet? It w I feel like I understand, but I'm not entirely. Say so that the, the in risk, other words. The risk of underbuying is, like, just think of residential, right? It's um. There's probably no better, just like a illustration of just the how value is just a feeling. So mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you pay a bunch of money, and when you're parting with that money as a client, you might be thinking this is a lot of money. But once it's spent, you come home to this every day. You come home to this feeling and the feeling you don't want to come home to is, oh, I cheaped out. I should have spent okay. a little bit more. Yes. So that's the danger of underbuying that feeling. And I would say you could kind of, you know, share that for like foreshadow that with your client a little bit, you know, the last thing I know, I know this is a, it's, it's a lot of money, but, um, and I, I know the feeling of over, feeling like you overpaid for something 
but I also know the feeling of underbuying. And I know the, and you have to come home to this every day. And That's just so think good. of the feeling that you want to come home to every day. Um, and you don't want the feeling to be like, oh man, I really wish I had just done that thing that I cheaped out on instead. It's hilarious. Yeah. I did not connect it like this. And I literally had a f- conversation with my friend yesterday. I went to visit her. She just had a baby. They're talking about the deck in the backyard that they need done. And she's like, it's shocking to me, the varying in prices we're getting from quotes. And I was like, well, there's varying levels of talent and expertise and whoever you're getting quotes from, number one, make sure you're seeing their work. A lot of people shockingly do not do that. Um, I'm sure businesses don't do that. But, but I, ultimately, I was like, you, you want to make sure that you don't come home and go, well, I'm really pissed off because I got what I paid for. Even though deep down, you're not thinking, well, I got what I paid for. You're thinking like, I hate this guy. They did a terrible job. But I'd rather, I told her, I basically would rather a client walk away from me going, well, shoot, that, was, that wasn't cheap, but man, I'm so happy. As opposed to, well, this isn't as great as it could have been. We did our and, kitchen last year. We didn't, my, my wife took care of it all. She's got a great design sense, did not use an interior designer. Um, and dealing with the contractors and the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the counter. So you spent all this money. The radiuses on the corners of the countertops are wrong. They screwed it up. Mm-hmm. And it's um, most days I don't see it, but as soon as somebody says, "Oh, great kitchen," I immediately think of the corners, and I look at those corners, and I think, oh, like yeah. it's every those corners will be there every, every day. day of your life like, what, that you're in your what house. What would you pay to go back in time to not make that mistake? I know. So we that's so, I am going to steal that nugget and write it down for my yeah, next conversations. That is so good. I I think when it comes to uh, residential interiors, like it, you cannot, you can't put an economic value on it, but if you have lots of money, um, if you have lots of money, you're probably, you probably have a stress filled work life. And when you come home, you want a feeling of calmness and luxury or energy or whatever it is you want. And because you can't, put a dollar value on it doesn't mean it's not worth spending a lot of dollars on. And Mm -hmm. you, you don't know as a designer, you have no idea until you ask your client what this is really worth to them. And you still have to do some kind of alchemy around, well, what prices, but the beauty of using options and anchoring high is you don't have to get the price exactly right. You can put forward three different ways to work together. So let's say the client says my budget's uh, $25,000. And you come back and you say, all right, so 25 is a little bit on the low end. Um, I think on the higher end, um, we could, we could give, I have a high degree of certainty that we could deliver this like feeling that you're looking for. And you have to uncover that feeling Mm -hmm. in the $75,000 range. But I'm going to, um, I'm going to come back to you with a, a few different ways that we can work together at different price points. And then you come back and say, all right, I mentioned 75. Here's what we can do for 75. Here's what you get. Here's what I could do for 25. And it's whatever you're stripping some things. Yeah. Right. It might be levels of service. It might be quality of the pieces that you're buying. It might be the amount of time or the distance you're willing to go to source materials, 
whatever yeah. it might be supervising installation it might whatever it is mm-hmm. just take some of those value drivers out yeah say, we'll do this and then you, you um you'll have to do these things that we're not going to do and what you're essentially doing is to give the client a, the low price you're saying you have to take a bunch of risk and in the high price it's like we'll we'll take all that risk away from you oh because they have say, to do a little more of it on their own every Every price has an uncertainty discount built in. Okay, thank you for saying that because I needed that explained to me better. Okay. Yeah, and it's there's a risk reward, right? So if you think if you put three, generally speaking, you put three prices in front of your clients, the low price is the one where, okay, well we can give you the low price, but you have to take you have to take some risk or do some work, a combination of those two things. And anytime the client has to do some work in this space, they're going to take risk. And okay, I was just end. gonna. Is that always what risk is? Is that they're executing on the on their own, or is there another example of well, risk? Well, when the client's executing on their own, there's the okay. risk that they're gonna like we who's screw responsible for the countertop screw up? We are. Yeah. We we can push it onto the onto the contractor, and that you know we're now we're in an argument with the contractor. Um, yeah. So, like in in telling yes. the story, you would say that that we just make all that go away. Oh my goodness. You actually do say like, do you use the words to the client about the risk? Oh, it's a great idea. You don't do it. It's not kind of blanket advice. So pick your spot. But generally, it's a good idea to talk about the levels of risk inherent in each price. So you've got 75 is what I said kind of we'd like to get for this job. So we can deliver a high degree of certainty that you're going to get the feeling that you're looking for when you come home every day. You mentioned your budget. So here's what we would do for 75. You mentioned your budget is 25. Here's what we can do for 25. So here's what we're not doing. You're going to have to do these things or you're going to have to take this risk. Now, in the middle, we have the $50,000 option. <clears throat> and it, it doesn't have to be exactly in the middle. I'm just yeah. using you know, hypothetical numbers again. And in comparison, so 50000 is twice the client's stated budget, but it's less than the anchor price that you began with. And there's actually quite robustly proven science that says that first you want to get your number out before the client states their number okay science shows is we we use two systems of thinking there's a book on this written by daniel kahneman called thinking fast and slow so it's the there's two systems of thinking system one and system two system one takes the first piece of information on the subject and it's very cognitively efficient it uses mental shortcuts known as heuristics to like just essentially jump to conclusions based on very little information. So I throw out a price to you, 75,000, and you think, okay, well, that's too much. And you start to use system two, which is where you, we start to do math and reasoning, and it's very cognitively expensive. So we don't stay in system two for very long. And we start to reason away from the starting point. And what all the science shows is we stop within what we consider to be a rational range. So you imagine the client has a rational range of a price range. And on one end is is a low anchor that's their budget. And they're starting off low trying to negotiate with you. On the Mm -hmm. other end is the high anchor, which is the number that you started with. What the science shows is whoever gets their number on the table first, then both parties start to kind of reason away from that number. But they stop inside what they consider to be the rational range. 
This okay. has been proven over and over again. It's so powerful. You can't undo it even when you know it's being done to you. Okay. So like, if I understand correctly, you're saying if the client had thrown out the number, then I would have gone lower in the end if it was like, so not in the range, right? Like I would have done the yeah. same thing, which makes total sense. Is there a point that's too early to throw at these high numbers and freak no. the client out? No, the win without pitching rule of money is those who don't talk about it don't make it. So talk about money early and often. And you, like so there's phone a, call early? Yeah, so you could use your minimum level of engagement if you're concerned, you see the size okay. of the project and you're concerned about budget. You might say, hey, you should know we have a minimum level, level of engagement. It doesn't make sense for us to do projects under X. Okay. And if the client says, oh, it's under X, then you can say, well, we make exceptions from time to time. It really depends on how. Tell me about your project. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me how much I like you. (laughs) Yeah. And then you can come back and say, well, okay, uh, I understand your budget's X. I'm going to come back with three different ways that we can work with you. And at least one of those will be at X. And then you come back and you come back with multiples of X. And there's more studies on this that show it really does not matter how high your anchor option is. It can be multiples of the client's stated budget. And again, the job of that anchor. So I would say regardless of your anchor price option in interior design, in particular in residential interiors, is basically you asking yourself, what's the most I could do here. If money were no object, Mm -hmm. if this were my house and money was no object, what would I do? And you you lead with that one. And and you you can apologize kind of by saying, all right, I know you've got a budget. But first, I begin every project by asking myself, what would I do if this were my house and money were no object? Oh, I love it. And and the client might say, well, money is an object. And you can say, yeah, yeah, but it's the creative exercise. Just indulge me. Yeah, I've, I've got stuff that meets your budget too, but this it, it's an exercise in creative thinking. So come on the journey with me. And then you describe and you show this beautiful world and they fall in love with it. And the number in their mind starts to move. And then, so I would suggest you start every proposal with your anchor option saying, I ask myself, what would I do if this were my house and money were no object? And then you deliver That's that. That's such a great way to that do solution it. solution and that price. And it doesn't matter how big the price is. Have it be really big, really profitable. They're probably not going to take it. Some will, mm-hmm. but they're probably not going to take it. And remember, the job of that price isn't to sell that option. And then go to their budget and say, okay, here's what I can do for your budget. And by comparison, it's not very much. And then you say, <laughs> now, if you want to go a little bit past your budget, here's a middle option. And the middle option can be 10% higher than the budget. It can be five times the budget, whatever you want. You, there's no science around that. Use your intuition. Okay. Frick, man, this is so good. So you know what I was doing? I used to do options. I mean, I have done, I'm sure you've experienced this in your career, too, like every which way, and I've tried it this way. I was doing packages, but hilariously, I was trying to sell the highest priced one. That was like full service is what I want. But now what I decided, well, correct me if I'm wrong, I need to come up with a, what is a full service? But then how do I add on extra stuff on there? That's a bit more than a client ever needs, but great if they went for it, but they probably wouldn't. Cause I do want to be able to take the project beginning to end creatively um, just for my portfolio for whatever. So that was, that was like a really interesting thing that I obviously was doing wrong. 
But I think it's important too, like obviously for you to be able to throw out these numbers, especially in a, where you can't be, tell somebody, well, you're going to spend X and, but you're going to make Y. We need to understand how much hours innate, like we already, we need to know our numbers first too, right? To be, because at the end of the day, we need to know that whatever numbers are, I shouldn't be spending more hours than what I've deemed an appropriate hourly rate. You shrugged a bit, so I don't know. What's your thought? So you do, you do some rough math on how long this is going to take you, and you don't price like use it to to figure out your cost. And you've yeah, um, which is tricky because our hourly rates aren't really our costs. It's cost with profit built in. So, but you have a sense of uh, it doesn't really make sense for me to work for less than X per hour. Yeah. So when you're arriving at your budget, you would look at the time and you would think, okay, so like my minimum hourly wage would be X and that this number of hours, so this price. And then you would do things like double it or triple it or add, you know, add on from there. Um, so you do some rough math to calculate your costs, yes. Right. Because I know a lot of people like, you know, we talk to online are always like, well, I just like to do flat fees because I don't want to track my time. But it's like, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like sometimes people don't realize how much time they're spending. And if I hadn't gotten to know how many hours I was spending, I would have continually been wildly undercharging and then spreading myself so thin, right? We're talking on probably very massive varying scales of numbers than you're used to. So those are always probably like, profitable for the companies maybe you're working with like you're talking like small business here right where you know you think something you you charge for if you turned it into an hourly rate 10 hours worth of time this is a terrible example but it takes you 30 right so just stuff like that or is it also i need to refresh my brain and say well that's not worth it i don't know what i'm saying right now i've gone on a tangent no i no i get it um (laughs) So it's not just time, especially if if it's just you or if it's a small firm. Yeah. I think a better number is AGI per FTE. So adjusted gross income fees before commissions or markups on product sales. Okay. Fees per full-time equivalent employee. And so if it's just you, ask yourself, well, what do you think you should be earning in fees in a year? Right. Um, and that number is going to be somewhere probably between $100,000 and $200,000, generally yep. speaking. Um, and maybe it's higher, maybe it's lower. And in my business, in a training company, we don't, we don't track time. We don't, but I, that AGI per FDE is something I, I look at. Okay. Okay. See, then that's just a whole like shift also, right, over here. Okay, I don't want to take us too off track because I know we're still going through these rules. Yeah. Rule number one, price the client. Rule number two, offer options. Rule number three, anchor high. I'm going to give you one more rule. Okay. Limit your proposals to one page. Guilty. Yeah. And, (laughs) and so what is it? What's on one page? Well, three columns, three options, three prices. And I get a lot of people and I don't, I don't, I haven't sufficiently addressed this in the book. Um, but I get a lot of people pushing back saying, yeah, I can't get it to one page. I've got it to like two and a half pages, et cetera. And the point that I didn't make in the book that I make all the time in conversations is 
The proposal is really the words that come out of your mouth. You should view the proposal as a, something you're delivering orally in a conversation with the client. And I've been saying that for years, but as soon as you introduce the idea of options, now it's really, you kind of owe it to the client to organize that information and have yeah. a visual reference. But that visual reference should not exceed one page. And the beauty of it being on one page is you keep, you take the focus, you can't possibly put everything on a page that you want to communicate when it comes to three options. Maybe you possibly can, but it's not likely. Therefore, you yourself recognize that this one page document is really just a catalyst for the conversation. It gets you into the mind mindset that the proposal, the written document is not going to close the deal. I am going to close the deal and I'm going to do it through a conversation, not a presentation, not a written document. I'm going to do it through a conversation. So I'm going to have this one page piece of paper and I'm going to say, okay, I've got three different ways we can work together, three different price points. I'm going to start with the most elaborate, most expensive one where I ask myself, what would I do if this were my house and money were no option? And it's a creative exercise. And so the price is hold on to your hats because the price is $300,000. And it doesn't matter if they're choking and they can't hear what you say next because all they hear is ringing in their ears. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter. And then you go in and just, and then once you, you've described the first one, then you can push the piece. Once you've stated the price, then you can put the piece of tape, paper on the table for a visual reference, and then you can walk them through it. And it's when you, when you understand that the proposal is really the words that will come out of your mouth, then you'll be comfortable with just a, with a written summary. And once you have an agreement in principle, then you would pull out a contract. Okay. You pull out the contract, like have they already told you what? One, two, or three? You do, the contract does not come out until you have an agreement in principle. So the proposal is there's three different ways to okay. work together. Let me explain them to you. I've got them summarized on this piece of paper. You explain the three options and say, which one would you like? The client chooses one or maybe even a combination of two and you arrive at something. Okay. And then you say, great, here's a contract for your signature or I'll send over the contract in the next three hours, whatever it is. So don't conflate uh, the proposal and the contract by this one big long document. Don't like what? waste all these hours of your life these big long ridiculous documents. <laughs> well, I think you said something else in the book, like you know, by by doing that, it's like people are trying to like prove that you know the sale through the proposal when you should have already done that along the way, kind of thing. Okay, so my question about all this that I that kind of came up as I was going was at what point in time are you talking about pro like the process of your business or does it matter to a client like sometimes clients are like I don't understand like what does the process look like and there's to me there's a lot of managing of expectations of how things go like just so you know by the time we get to purchasing furniture you're going to be giving me a check for that in full for me to purchase on your behalf if we're going with option whatever right at what point do those details matter or is it too much early on if a client's asking like does that play a role in this is like how we work yeah so that does. they can get on board with that process 
generally speaking, there are exceptions to this, but generally speaking, process to use the Canadian word. I say process. Wait, 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 what do I say? Process. Proce I say process. What do you say? Process. Point of Are you American, but you live in Canada? No, I'm, I speak Canadian. I write American. Okay. <laughs> to the people you're selling to. <laughs> yeah. um, generally speaking, process is something that calms down a nervous late stage prospect. Therefore, you use it late. So I don't okay. this, is, this is a little bit too much depth here, but so when people are in the early stages of buying, of considering hiring a, de a designer, they're really excited and excitable. And your job is to paint a, paint a vision of how beautiful the future could be. When they get close to buying, the excitement goes away because in the early stages, they're overweighting the benefits of change or of purchasing and they're underweighting the cost or consequences. When okay. they come close to making a decision to sign and pay, that's reversed. They now overweight um, in their mind all of the things that could go wrong right? and the cost. So your job when you close is to calm people down and to reassure them that everything is going to be okay. So that's typically in the closing meeting, you're going over the proposal, you're going over all of the details and your ability to speak frankly about here's how long it's going to take. And here's when this, you're going to be writing me a check for this much money at this point, et cetera. All of that detail where some of it, you might feel like, ah, oh, this is stuff I've got to get out of the way. If you can just own all that detail and be confident in delivering it, it's actually, it will actually help you close the sale because you're communicating to the client. I've done this before. I do it all the time. I have a defined way of doing it. And here's the methodology. And there's okay. uh, it's kind of complicated, but there's a lot of reassurance in the client for you to go over the details of the process uh, later. Now, the later. exception would be from time to time, they're asking questions early on. And there's other nuance there too, because later doesn't necessarily mean they might be late in the buying cycle when they already come to you. Um, oh, so like they've asking, already, okay. Yeah, if they're, and if they're asking process questions, get right into it. Okay. Right into all of the process. Okay, here's how it works. Da, 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 da. And even if separate from your one-page proposal, you might have a one-page flow chart or diagram or schematic of some kind that says, here okay. are the stages, here are the proposal. Here's the stages. Keyword one page. page. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. Um, okay, that's that's very helpful. And okay, so... Another thing that I had been feeling like I was verbal diarrheaing on my calls, my discovery call. So is it really just, I should be, I, I stick to the rules. Like I go through, I'm, I'm qualifying them. Like you've talked about, cause he also, for the record guys, you got to read this book. It's freaking outstanding. He talks about the sale conversation. It takes you through a like step-by-step -step on how you qualify the client I'm going to go back. I made my own flow chart. <laughs> so uh, probative combo, qualifying value, all of this stuff. But is there, do you, is your philosophy like really just answer the questions or what you deemed as important? Is there, could you say too much, which could be a problem? Is that a philosophy you follow or not? Because I've heard this before, like just answer the questions presented to you. Don't give more information than is necessary. <laughs> I think that's generally 
good advice. I was just okay. on a sales call earlier this morning with somebody who um, was explaining his situation to me, and he went on for almost 10 minutes, and I didn't say a word. And um, I was thinking, oh, even I'm pretty seasoned at this. It's not easy for me to not say a word for 10 minutes. I took good notes. And there were times when I thought, oh, I want to interject here to prove my expertise, but I didn't need to. He was a referral. He came to me. I was in the power position anyway. But still, I'm fighting this urge to speak instead of letting him describe his situation. Um, so generally speaking, if the client's talking, don't interject. We, uh, we're all pretty good conversationalists until it comes to a sale. Then we... <laughs> then we we mess everything up. We could turn into the sales robot. We, um, we do all the wrong things. We speak too much. We go on too long, et cetera. So those are things that you, that you need to practice and learn to do. Okay. All right. I'm going to just ask you two more questions before, cause we're coming up on an hour now. And I do um, have a hard stop. Yeah. Yeah. So on our websites, what are your thoughts on, okay, normally I would have a client schedule call, but sometimes clients are, you know, they need more time. An option where a client fills out a form to receive more information, that one pager, for example, I don't know, whatever. Do you like that idea of providing information in a emailed form beforehand or bad, good idea? People, I don't have super strong feelings on this, but the feelings that I do have say, get to the conversation as soon as possible. Okay. So have a phone number on there, have a contact form. Don't, I wouldn't be sending them any information in advance. And the goal of your website is okay. to inspire. So you do a great job on your website. In fact, your about us section of your website might be the best I've ever seen on any firm it's great what it's i gotta shout out uh, somebody i didn't do that curio electro she's gonna die when she hears that it's so good <laughs> five points about you about your kind of personal life but each one of those points builds your expertise in your practice and it's kind of so it's personal it's revealing but it's all relevant mm -hmm. um, and then the website it's really about showing your best work Mm -hmm. um, and then, so you're inspiring early when people are thinking of hiring a designer, they're thinking of a build or a reno, they're, they're overweighting the benefits of change. They're, they're looking for emotional inspiration, stimulus, et cetera. So you provide all that. And then closing is about reassuring. It's a, let me walk you through the process. So you get a sense of how I'm not going to screw this up. Right. Yeah. Oh my God. Question. It did. And I, I'm just like, overjoyed that you even talked to me. It's amazing. Thank you so much. I was going to ask you another one, but I think it's too big. So we're, I'm just going to tell everybody where they can follow you and where they can buy your book, find your book. Cause I'm telling you, it's, it's a good read. It's so good. I have Thanks. literally my list, my action items that I noted from this book is one, two, three, four, like just to review and revise a bunch of stuff is outstanding. It's so good. Thanks. Well, I've really enjoyed our chat. Thanks for the, thanks for the chance to be on your podcast. Yeah. And so where can everybody find you and, and the book? <laughs> so the book is available only at pricingcreativity.com. And again, it's expensive. It's hundreds of dollars, um, $100 for the ebook, $320 for the ebook manual and videos, and then $199 for ebook and manual. My first book, The Win Worth Without Pitching Manifesto is really a you can get that at Amazon. That's a 20 or $25 book. 
And that's really the yes, you can book that will get you into the mindset to be a better salesperson, but pricing creativity, you'll, you'll make more money immediately. You should make more money after listening to this podcast. And if you want more nuance, because there's so much more nuance, there's so much. I know, I know. It's so good. Your podcast too, like which we already talked about too, Bob's. I started listening to that. I got so many nuggets from that too. So now I'm going to power through that and get some, some gold, but thank you so much for taking the time. I super appreciate it. Thanks, Michelle. Can we talk about the gloriousness that was this podcast? It's really good, guys. And yes, the book is definitely expensive, but it is a very valuable read. Uh, I got the ebook. It was incredible. I'm not done it yet. I'm going to keep powering through. But like I said, I made a list of probably 10 things that I want to change and tweak and play with just to see. I think the biggest takeaway for me was that our client base ideally should be a blend of varying tiered, sized, priced, budgeted clients. And that's a big shift for me on the mindset of, um, you know, I wanted only big clients and da da da, whatever. Also, the other big takeaway was really kind of showing a client, okay, throwing out a high number to them, but then saying, okay, what were you thinking? You know, if I start by saying, okay, your kitchen's going to cost design fees $5,000 and the client's like, ooh, that's more than I thought. Then, okay, you know, what were you thinking of investing? Ideally, maybe we've already talked about that and they say 2000. Okay, you know what? Leave this with me. Would you like to get some help? I think I, let me see what I can do as far as some options for how we can work together. So now that high number is like the highest, most elaborate way we can work together at the, I'm going to make this insane. And like, what would I do if it was my house and I had all the money in the world versus, okay, 2000 is the lowest price and then find that middle ground. And he's basically saying that that high price that you said in the consultation versus what they may have said to you verbally you find the middle ground and hopefully it gets them from the 2000 to that middle ground and you've upsold them that way. And I just think it's genius. And I already sent a proposal out today with this methodology and I decided to go flat fee for a kitchen design because I do think when there's no furniture involved, it's a little easier to, to identify potential hours involved but I basically gave them three tiers and I quoted them in person, the highest number. And then I, they didn't seem really to flinch at that number, to be honest, but then I provided a couple other options just to see. I'm just curious to see how that nets out, but I'm really excited about it. All right, guys, who's ready to rant? Hey, Michelle, Jacqueline Harper here from Harper Designs. I wanted to be a part of your Real Talk rant. So here's my rant. We waited four months, four months, which, okay, you know, that's pretty normal, for this black marble table to come in for my clients um, in Brantford. It arrived yesterday in pieces. So crappy. So basically, it came across on a boat. A bunch of other items were broken as well. There's no one really to blame. It is what it is. It's just a crummy situation. I've got my reveal for them in a month. So this was one of the final pieces we were waiting on. It's just really unfortunate. So I had to tell my clients that we would either just get their full refund and leave it. I could source them a brand new table. And if we wanted the same table, 
we had to wait six months for a new one. So I will be sourcing a new table for them free of charge, even though it's not my fault. I do want to make it right for them. Um, and that's my rant. Just a crummy situation. Thank you, Jacqueline Harper, for submitting that rant is exactly what I was looking for. I want you to submit your Real Talk rant as well. It's important, guys, to know that even though in our heads we think rant is negative, it does not have to be negative, and I fully anticipate, fully plan to bring you some super positive rants, at least from my end in the near future. But if you have something you want to get off your chest, something that happened that you're feeling super passionate about, because that's all it is, it's about feeling a real type of way about something, email your audio recording, just like Jacqueline did, to admin at michellebennett.com. Or if you're not feeling the idea of having your audio on, on the pod, that's cool. You can type it out. I will read it dramatically on your behalf. And if you're wondering, that is definitely my voice that I distorted in GarageBand that said, Real Talk Rant. Real Talk Rant. I'm mildly embarrassed about that. But I'm going to keep it because it's my podcast and I do what I want. And I also found some fun garage band effects that I think could really add some level of production quality to this pod. Anyways, I'll see you guys next week. Bye!